And good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for that preface, Steve. It's the perfect preparation for what we have to look forward to today. Let me pose a question to all of you as we dive into Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Have you had some form of darkness in just the past week or so? Have you had a moment of frustration, maybe several moments? Have you actually carried that frustration right into anger at some point over something? Have you dealt with a little grief at times? Perhaps a grief over the loss of someone dear or the loss of not being able to get together with people that you love? A loss of what you looked forward to that's not going to happen because of a pandemic? Whatever darkness we may have experienced or may be experiencing right now, I've got to tell you, this message is for you. We need it. We're heading into the darkest part of our winter at a time in our nation, which, in my opinion, is one of the darkest I've seen in my lifetime. So, boy, if there's ever a time when we needed a thrill of hope, man, it's now. Let me begin by telling a true story of something that happened exactly 45 years ago on one December night in Flagstaff, Arizona. <laughs> it was my first year away from home. I was at college at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. I only knew two people personally when I went to college there, and I was not in very many classes with either of them, which means I was lonely. It was a lonely first semester, and I took a long walk to North Campus to some of my classes. It was about a mile away from my dorm. I had a lot of time to talk to God that first semester. Well, I attended a choir concert early in December, probably very close to this date, 45 years ago, and I had met uh, one through one of my known friends. I had met a young lady only two days before the concert. And she sat two seats over from me. There was an empty seat between she and I. We weren't dating or anything. Just don't get that idea. But when the choir started to sing this number. I sighed so deeply. And I looked over at her and I said, oh, I love this song. And she looked kind of strangely at me. And she said, uh, are you okay? <laughs> she didn't know the backstory. She didn't understand why that song was so meaningful to me. Because you see, when I was growing up and was a wee child, my mother had a big honking stereo system in the living room. And that was the kind you could put those big vinyl LPs on there, LP for long play. Kids, ask your grandparents. And she could stack 10 at a time. And so she would stack up her favorite Christmas albums on that huge stereo and crank it up all through the Christmas season. And that specific song, Still, 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 became kind of my go-to peaceful number and when that would play, especially late at night, it would come on on the very last album she had on the stack, and it was the last song on the album. And I would be lying on that wonderful, warm, carpeted living room floor, looking at the Christmas tree lights blinking, and that song would be my lullaby. And I would feel 
a thrill of hope. It wasn't the kind of thrill that you get when you go parachute jumping. <laughs> it was a different kind of a thrill. And fast forward to my first year away from home in a strange place with a lot of people I didn't know. They were completely foreign to me. And that song comes on. It takes me all the way back to that spot. And I felt a thrill of hope because it made the waiting easier. I knew that I could wait that next three weeks and get through final exams as difficult as it was going to be because I was gonna be home again. I was gonna see friends that I hadn't seen in three months. I was gonna see my family. I was gonna to have to be able to eat those waffles with pecans that my mom made during the holiday season mm -hmm. and her holiday hooch non-alcoholic. It's kind of a mulled cider, actually. All those things were something I really looked forward to. And hearing that song brought all that flooding into my soul. Songs have power, don't they? Take, for example, the song I'm going to talk about. Let's see if you can guess it. It was the second highest money-making single in the world, just below Happy Birthday, by the way, which is copyrighted. That's a number one hit. The song I'm talking about has made well over $65 million so far in royalties. It was written in 1940 by a Jewish immigrant from Russia. It was sung by a young man who at only age seven was given the nickname Bing. Okay, that was the dead giveaway, right? So I know which song you know I'm talking about. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's not the song I'm talking about. It is, of course, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Join me, everybody. That's one of those songs that just has staying power. And one of the reasons I think that it's so powerful is because it takes us away from something that we were focusing on that's bringing us anxiety or grief or anger or frustration. And it takes us to a different place and it shifts us in such a powerful focus shift because it takes us to memories. There's something about Stevie Wonder that uh, comes to mind when I read this because I remember a quote from him. He said, music gives us memories. And the longer a song has existed in our lives, the more memories we have of it. And some songs have more memories than others. I know you know that. If a song comes on the radio, you have life experiences attached to that specific song. And it can take you to a place. Uh, in the growth encounter just a little while ago, Steve was talking about King David and being a shepherd. And we were talking about what it means that God would allow him to spend all that time alone learning to shepherd sheep so that he could become the kind of leader God had in store for him. And I was reminded of a hymn that was important in my family's history. My mom and dad had the hymn, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us, sung at their wedding. And when my mom passed away, years before that happened, she had typed everything up for her funeral. She was very planned and organized that way. And she had a theme for her own funeral. And it was, he led us all the way. So every time I hear that hymn, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us, it's powerful for me. It connotes things that go far deeper than many people will ever quite understand. That's a part of my history. And that song now is a part of that history as well. 
Well, we're going to be looking at a song which I think has even more history than most other songs, even more history than White Christmas. It comes from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. It's a song. Many people don't know that it's a song, but it is. And it's something that was inspired 2,700 years before White Christmas was even written. It's an incredible song, and it has some powerful memories and some extremely powerful connotations for those who know this song, especially because it's a thrill of hope pointing to a future event that would change history for all those who would accept that event. Let me read some of the lyrics as we think about the historic context to this song. Be thinking about this as I read. There's a nation to the north of Israel, Assyria. They were oppressing Israel at that time. And Israel had a choice to either keep doing things their own way, as we've been learning about in our growth encounter. They kept making choices. We want a king like those other nations, or we want to worship these other idols, or whatever it is they kept choosing, instead of doing things God's way. Those who do things God's way, we're finding out in scripture, are what we consider walking in the light. And so there was a dark time in Israel. We understand some of the things that happened because I'll read them and I'll expound on them in one of the, the uh, sections of this uh, song so that you'll understand why there was a, such a dark time in Israel. Starting at verse 1, Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. This is where I have to put a little parenthetical statement in so you understand some context about what those two names are. They mean nothing to us. Zebulun and Naphtali are the names of two of the sons of Jacob, who was later named Israel, who became sort of the, one of the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, and their descendants became known as these tribes. That was the 12 tribes of Israel, and these are the two tribes they were the first two tribes in northern part of this nation in Israel that were carried away into captivity. These two tribes were the first tribes in the northern kingdom to suffer the real consequences of Israel's choices to walk in darkness rather than walking in light. Uh, there are a couple of details that I think are really vital, and this is one of the things that I noticed that kind of give me a thrill of hope every time I look into the scriptures and I see some quote in the New Testament that takes us back to the Old Testament, especially when it takes us back to a song that has so much history. We know that because of 2 Kings 1529, uh, the king of Israel at that time, the name was Pekah, uh, P-E-K-A, and the king of Assyria, that nation that was oppressing Israel at the time, was named Tiglath-Pileser. Very strange names. Why would they be included? because it puts us in context with real history at a real time so that we know this really happened. This was a fact. It's truth. It's not just some made-up fable, and I think it's important for us to realize that. We need to know that because we know that in that time frame, that's when these two tribes were carried away into captivity. Now, that ends my parenthetical statement. We made it all the way through one half of the first verse <laughs> of our song today. Let's pick up at the second half. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the nations, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Joy and I have walked in those areas when we were in Israel 
And so now I can picture those areas and understand that this was the spot that God had planned 700 years before Christ came on the scene, 2,700 years before we started to be able to read about it. And then verse two, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. Isn't that something? The nation that was shrinking, that was being carried away into captivity, and yet he's inserting this phrase in a song that says that they're going to be enlarged rather than shrinking. It's one of his promises that comes through all the way back from promising Abraham. The descendants will be greater than the number of sands on the seas. And they will rejoice before you as people rejoiced at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder, which means victory for Israel. Verse 4. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian, another historic episode in Israel's history. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will all be burned. This is a song, lyric, poetic way of saying, you're going to have victory, Israel. They will be fueled for the fire. And then something that you will find very familiar in verse six. For unto us a child is born, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment or the zeal of the Lord in heaven's armies will make this happen. That's how this will be accomplished. Now, let's pray that the Lord through his Holy Spirit will bring even more clarity to this song and help us understand that thrill of hope that it brings to all those who understand it. First, let's grab some historical context. The biblical context, which we see immediately, comes to us in just the previous chapter, Isaiah 8, 19 through 22. We understand that this was written 700 years before Jesus was born, and yet Isaiah is given such specific information to share in this song. He takes us from gloom in chapter 8 to glory in chapter 9. Israel had a choice to make. They could turn to God or they could keep trying to chart their own course. Each time we see Israel doing things their own way, there is darkness, there's grief, there's frustration, there's anger, there's a longing for what they might have had had they not made those bad choices. That's happening again in Israel's history and Isaiah knows that, and God has inspired Isaiah to bring this harsh word about the way things will be if they continue down that road. Now, imagine this on your Christmas card, which you receive from a relative. There will be trouble and anguish and dark despair. They will be thrown out into utter darkness. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Not exactly a Hallmark card sort of saying, is it? And yet, that's what we get in the chapter just before we get to chapter 9. It says, someone says to you, 
Let's ask the mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead with their whisperings and mutterings. They will tell us what to do, but shouldn't people ask God for guidance? Should the living seek guidance from the dead? Look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. They will go from place to place, weary and hungry. And because they are hungry, they will rage and curse their king and their God. They will look up to heaven and down at the earth, but wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and dark despair. They will be thrown out into the darkness. So says Isaiah 8, 19 through 22. Israel chose darkness when God offered light. Now, we might say, yeah, that's them, and that's then, but this is us, and this is now. So we can't really connect the dots with anything happening today. Oh, really? <laughs> you don't think that we choose darkness when God offers light? I think we do. I think we do often. We choose darkness every time we do something that we know, we know deep in our heart is against God's word. And then we gather enough like-minded people around us and we tell our story in such a way that it makes us feel so innocent and they agree with us. And so we have innocence by popularity, innocence by association. If I associate my, myself with enough people around me who can validate that what I did was not that bad, then I don't have to really feel guilty about that. That's choosing darkness. And oh man, aren't we tempted to do that? I say that because I know I've done it in my own life. I'm tempted to find people who will justify my behavior when something deep down causes me to think, oh, wait a minute, I think the Holy Spirit is giving me that check in my spirit. And he's trying to get me to wake up and to say, hey, look to the light. You're walking into darkness, buddy. Beams and splinters. How many times have some of us either been tempted to or maybe have blasted somebody else? These days, it's always through social media, right? Because that's our society and we're in lockdown mode. So let's just do it over the internet. We do that. And yet when somebody does the same thing to us, we're just out of our minds. We can think how unjust for them to tell me that that way. <laughs> Beams and splinters. The three Ds. Sometimes when we know that we really want to do something, and yet we're pretty sure that that's something that would not please God, we either start to deny scripture or discredit it and try to change it somehow, or look at it as though perhaps somebody wrote that way back then for their purposes, and that specific thing, specific thing does not apply to me in this day and age, and so we'll discredit it, or we'll say it was just humans writing about human episodes, it wasn't divinely inspired, or we'll just flatly disobey it and say, I don't care what it says, I'm doing what I want to do. And so we do it, the three Ds. That's when we choose to walk in darkness. So things really haven't changed much since Isaiah wrote this song that we're studying today. And yet, and yet, one word changes everything. This is where we start to, to feel that thrill of hope. You know what that one word is? The very first word in Isaiah chapter 9, nevertheless. Beautiful word. It's a gospel word if ever there was one. Can you feel the, the shift in the mood? Can you hear the minor changing into major? With one word, all that happens from chapter 8 to chapter 9. There will be trouble and anguish and dark despair. 
Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. And I italicized the word were because that's important for us. Isaiah is so sure of this. It's one of those thus saith the Lord kind of pronouncements that he knows it's going to happen. He's not saying it might happen sometime in the future. It's powerful because he says, oh, yes, this will have happened by the time you're reading this. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Here's a sad reality. This is sort of that bad news, good news part of the gospel, which we hear so much about. We can see it all the way through the scriptures, including all the way back in Isaiah. Sad reality is, just like Israel, we chose darkness. Every single one of us, all of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed his light because we've chosen darkness, and we do so willingly. But there's another reality. God does not desire to leave us in darkness. He promises a great light to expel the darkness. And the great thing about this whole Isaiah 700 years before Christ thing is that we see that near future fulfillment, a farther distant future fulfillment. And then when Christ comes on the scene, he points to another farther reaching fulfillment when he comes back to judge rightly. And so we see all those hop, skip, and a jump to the end of time, all compressed into this one beautiful gospel-centric song in Isaiah chapter 9. Here's a connection with Matthew's gospel, and this is why I love to see so many times in the New Testament, especially in the gospels, where they will quote or paraphrase from an Old Testament passage. So where is this Galilee of the nations? over there near the Sea of Galilee, where so much of the New Testament took place and where Jesus did a whole lot of his ministry. Leaving Nazareth, this is happening right after Jesus found out that John the Baptist had been beheaded, he went and lived in Capernaum, or we would say Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Joy and I went to Capernaum. I ate a fish pulled right out of the Lake of Galilee. It's called the Peter's fish. They just cooked it head and all. It's kind of gross, but it was good. We were right there in this spot where all this was taking place, and that's where Jesus went. Nazareth was not that far. Jesus walked it. May have been a couple of days walk for him. He went to live in Capernaum, which was right there by Simon Peter's house. He may have stayed with Simon Peter on a number of occasions, and all these things that we're reading in the New Testament were predicted all the way back in Isaiah. These areas of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is where those two tribes had resided before they were taken off into exile in the Babylonian exile. Why? Well, he tells us, verse 14, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. See what Isaiah did? He put into motion something that Matthew who was a contemporary of Jesus, Matthew, who could have seen lots of these oral traditions and written traditions and probably saw with his own eyes many of the things that were happening, could look back to that and connect the dots for us and say, this is what was being fulfilled. This Messiah, the one that was predicted, yeah, that's what he was doing. It was to fulfill everything. Jesus is that fulfillment. 
Verse 16, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Some of us have lived through the shadow of death. It's a horrible time and a horrible place. Some of you, unfortunately, I know have dealt with that with your own loved ones and some very recently. You've gotten phone calls that have said, be praying. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. And those hours of waiting and praying are awful. That's what it's like to live in the shadow of death. And in the midst of that, just as it was for Israel, just as it is for us today, we know that a light has dawned. And there's a thrill of hope knowing that for all those who recognize that light and can walk in the light, there is a hope of an eternity awaiting all of us. So how did Matthew know all this? He was connecting the dots. Look at all these references just right there in the first couple of chapters of Matthew. Talked about the virgin birth, which is a reference to Isaiah chapter 7. The place of the birth, which we talked about very recently from Micah chapter 5, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Matthew 2, 13 through 15, the family flees to Egypt. That was predicted all the way back in Hosea's prophecy. And then Herod's order to kill all those unborn babies age two and under, that was prophesied in Jeremiah, Rachel weeping for her children. So why Galilee? Why would God choose that spot of all spots? Well, for one thing, he constantly flips history on its head. He does the exact opposite of what we would expect if we were looking at it from human terms and from our human definitions of success. Galilee was a foreign place. It was backwards. It was kind of a backwater spot compared to a lot of other spots. And Galilee was of the Gentiles, of the nations. It was non-Jewish. And yet, we see, as he prophesied several times in the Old Testament, God is now honoring a people that had formerly walked in shame. And he's going to do all those things. The lowly shall be lifted up. Those who are high and mighty shall be taken down a few notches. Everything's going to be level at the foot of the cross. Isaiah's song is fulfilled. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Why would he write it that way? Why would in many of these translations it come across that way? It seems kind of odd. If I were writing, and I've done quite a bit of writing, an editor, a good editor would say, uh-oh, you shifted tenses here. You need to make sure that you're consistent with your tenses. You've gone from present tense to past tense or vice versa. And I would think, oh, uh-oh, yeah, I forgot where I was there. Thank you. And I would make it consistent. And yet Isaiah does this on purpose, but it makes perfect sense why he would do that. Why? It makes perfect sense because it's in the perfect tense. That's a little Greek joke for you. It makes perfect sense because it's in the perfect tense because he knew it would be fulfilled because he was so confident because God inspired him to write what he knew was going to be true. And he did that. We can count on this. We can count on it because we look to so many ways that God affirmed his word and made sure that we knew without a doubt. This is a thrill of hope because I inspired it this long before it happened and it will come true and it did come true. People recognized it. They're connecting the dots for us. He says he's going to increase Israel's joy. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. That echoes what the angel said to those shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, which means that he's going to bless every nation on earth. 
just as he had promised Abraham. And he's going to break the chains of the oppressed. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, looking back in history at one of the mile markers in Israel's history, so they could look back and say, oh yeah, we remember that time. God was for us. He's not against us. He's protected us so many times through history. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them. Now, this is being written at a time, remember, when we're talking about the Babylonian captivity, and Israel knows a thing about yokes. And for them to know that the yoke which has kept them in bondage will be shattered, wow, that's a thrill of hope. He brought them out of darkness and gloom and broke their chains apart. Peace, finally, peace. That poetic verse in verse 5, which talks about the boots and the shirts of their enemies being burned in a huge fire, and it would burn for days and days, that was a poetic way of saying, finally, your enemies will be abolished. There will be no more war. Everything's going to be peaceful because God is on his throne. You have submitted to his loving authority. You're walking in the light. Peace is restored. Because peace comes to all those upon whom God's favor rests. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he will reign forever and ever, as we can see in verse 7. So what's the most powerful Christmas song? You're going to hear a lot of them. I've heard a lot of them on the radio already. I made up a little song and sent it to my family on video because it just, I, was, I think it was inspired. And I, I sent it to them because it was uh, advert, 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 advert song, advert, 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 advert song. That's what happens when you turn on the radio these days. A lot of advertisements sprinkled with a little song here and there. You're going to hear a lot of Christmas songs and a lot of advertisements, but those songs, as good as they are, some of them with some powerful memories attached to your history and mine, there's still one song that's so much more powerful than any of the songs you're going to hear this season. It's the song that we just studied in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Why is that? It's so powerful because only Jesus had the power to expel the darkness, just exploded it. And he did that when he came in the incarnation, which is what we celebrate during this Advent season. Let me share a story to tie all this together. I found this one just this week, and I found it fascinating. Settle in. Take another sip of your coffee or your hot chocolate. And listen to the crackling fire as Pastor Clark shares a fireside story with you. In the mid-1800s, a parish priest in a tiny French town asked a local poet to write the lyrics for a song at Christmas. He was a generous priest, and he wanted to share this poet's gift with other people, even though he knew that that poet had a reputation around that village of drinking a little too much eggnog at this time of year. He asked him anyway, and the poet said yes, but he was just a poet. So he was a lyricist, he was not a composer. But no matter, this priest also happened to know a composer. And so on a carriage ride coming back from Paris to his little village, he was thinking and praying and thinking, who could I ask? Should I ask this guy? Mm, maybe not, I don't know. 
You see, the composer was Jewish. A Christmas song written by a Jewish man, uh, he was wondering if that was going to be the wise thing to do. But he said, you know, he's inspired. I know he's inspired. The people who hear his music will be inspired. I think it's okay to ask him. So the same priest who had asked the drunk poet to write the lyrics asked a Jewish composer to write the music for this Christmas song. It took a few years before the song was completed and actually performed, and it premiered on a Christmas Eve at a midnight candlelight service in that tiny little French village. The people who heard it instantly loved it. The song got shared with other people. It traveled around, not only from that village, but all the way to Paris, and then from Paris out into other towns and villages around the entire country of France. Well, fast forward a couple of years after it started to become popular. You know the drunk poet who wrote the lyrics? Well, he started sharing his story about how he had defected from the faith and he wanted to join the then popular socialist movement. Uh-oh. Now they didn't have social media back then, so it took a little while for that story to spread. But as it spread, the other part of that story also got connected with his story and it became known, what was not known previously, that the man who composed the music that went with those lyrics was a Jewish man. That didn't actually set well with some of the leaders of what was then the Catholic establishment in France. And so they were so unhappy about it that they abolished that song in France. They outlawed it. Said you can't sing that song anymore. So one of the things that happened, however, is that somebody who continued to sing that song surreptitiously perhaps, traveled to America, sang the song for a Unitarian American minister who heard it and he fell in love with one particular verse in that song because this man was dedicated to the abolition of slavery in the US. And when he heard that song and the part of the song that said, chains shall he break for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. I've just given it away. You know what the song is now. That minister fell in love with that song. And he felt like others might resonate with that part of the song the way he resonated with it. And that it might serve as an anthem, a sort of a call to arms. And that it might inspire other people to take the right steps that it would take to eventually ab abolish slavery. And so the song began to take hold in America where people loved it and sang it each Christmas. Now, fast forward in history all the way to 1906, nearly 50 years after the drunk poet wrote the lyrics to that, that early song. A young musical college professor who was then only 33 years old, he wasn't even born at the time that song was born but he was also a classically trained violinist. He played almost as good as Katie Buck. <laughs> and he was given an opportunity to play this song on the radio. This was the first time the song got radio play. And on Christmas Eve, this professor read from the Gospel of Luke, and then he read the lyrics to the song, and then he played it on his violin. Now, looking at the song's history, it seems 
absurd that an anonymous priest would ask a drunk poet and a Jewish composer to come up with a Christmas song about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the light who would come into the dark world and become our savior for everybody who would trust him and have their sins forgiven. A song that would be outlawed by the church, picked up by a Unitarian minister dedicated to the eradication of slavery, and then would become the first song heard on a national radio program in America. How in the world, how in the world could a song have such a crazy history like that? I'll tell you how. God was involved. He's really good at taking impossible situations and people with weird backstories, broken people, people with problems, imperfect people, and putting them together to accomplish his purposes, including a Babylonian captivity, hauling two tribes off from the area that we now know as Galilee of the Gentiles. He has this habit of taking the impossible and making it possible because he's that kind of a God. And he's the kind of God that doesn't desire to leave us in the dark. He wants to carry us into the light so that we can walk in the light with him forever. And that's what we celebrate. And that's what we celebrate, which is what was captured in that song, Oh, Holy Night, which was inspired by Isaiah chapter 9. He will expel darkness in all of our lives if we will allow him to do so. Is he your light? Because he wants to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this song in Isaiah, which is power-packed with incredible meaning. And we thank you for Matthew and his gospel, which points us back to connect the dots. Thank you for so many other dots that are connected all through your scripture to show that without a doubt, this real event in history became something so powerful for all of us who believe that it's something we cling to and we claim and we reflect on every time we hear songs like Isaiah 9 and O Holy Night. Thank you that you're so good at taking imperfect people and using us, if we're willing, for your purposes. We long to have a purpose-filled life, and you want to do that through us. And so I pray that if any, anybody is listening to this and they need to walk in the light, they will just let go of their own desire to lead themselves or save themselves, and they will relinquish the hold they have on themselves and allow you to grasp them. Because once you've done that, we know that no one can snatch them out of your hand. And I pray that you will show them the light of life, Jesus Christ, who will become the guide for them for the rest of their lives. If they'll submit to you, confess their sins, accept your forgiveness, and join others who are on that same quest to know you better and to spread your light as far as we can. And these things I pray in Jesus' name, who is the light of the world.